Hello and welcome to Hot Takes and Cool Tunes. I'm your host, Alex Johnson, here with Cormac Costello. On this show, we talk about what's new and important in indie music and art house cinema. Today, I'll be talking about Palme d'Or winner Titan, and later we'll be talking to Haley Wingo about horror movies. You're not going to want to miss this. Hey, Cormac. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm getting no sound. Mm. Testing, can you hear me at all? Alex. Let me see if it's a problem with my computer. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hi. How are you all right, doing? There we go. Good. I'm all right. All right. That's good. Um, so I don't. Did you see Titan this weekend? I did not get a chance to, but I uh, I have read a decent amount on it. All right. So I'll I'll talk about okay. Titan then. So Titan won the Palm d'Or at Cannes this year. Um, it comes out of a movement called either Fre- New French Extremism or New French Extremity. You've got some well-known directors like Gaspar Noé and Catherine Breyot working in that field. And they make, I think the best word for these kinds of movies is brutal. They are these very intense, very visceral experiences. They're violent, but not in the way like a Tarantino is violent, where it's all stylized. It's just very in-your-face. Um, and it's kind of uncomfortable to watch sometimes. Um and the, the idea is, like, to provoke and almost to shock. Um, so uh, this movie um, comes out of that, but it comes, uh, it comes at it from a somewhat different perspective. Uh, the first thing it really draws is um, a connection between women and cars. The movie starts out, you have this uh, young woman, uh, our main character... Um, who, uh, she's played by, uh, Vincent London, or Vincent Linden, and, uh, she has, like, a strange sexual connection to cars, um, and the first thing, real scene we get, um, is a scene at some sort of nightclub where, um, they have all these muscle cars that are all, you know, tricked out on display, and there's women dancing provocatively on top of the cars. And so it's drawing this connection between the, the way men ogle women and the way men ogle those kinds of cars. Um, so after this performance of sorts, uh, she goes back to her car. A man follows her uh, and forces her to kiss him, uh, and she stabs the guy with a razor. Um and that's about as normal as the movie gets. Um, from here on out, it's entirely, it's like a fever dream almost. Um, uh, she goes back into the warehouse, uh, has sex with a car, gets impregnated, um, and then uh, she kills some more people, uh, just random people that she lives with, uh, and then she goes on the run disguising herself as a young boy who went missing many years ago. Um, And the father of that young boy takes her in. She has to disguise the fact that she's pregnant um, by, like, using tape to push her stomach in, and it's very painful. Um, She breaks her own nose in a very, uh, very uncomfortable scene in a bathroom that is hard to watch. Um, and the dad of this missing boy is, is a firefighter and she has to constantly disguise herself as a boy around him. Um, so the movie is doing a lot of things. It is trying to make a lot of statements. 
about gender roles, about the stigma of pregnancy, about the role of women in society. Um, and honestly, I don't feel equipped enough to handle just about any of that, but uh, I'll try my best. Uh, honestly, the movie for me didn't do as much as it seems to have for other people. Um, I think part of it was it just kind of like started off on the wrong foot for me because um, we don't really understand why our main character is murdering these people. We understand why she murders the first person um, because he stalked her. But we don't really understand why she murders the other people, which is very confusing when you don't know your main character's motivation. Um, and then after that, it becomes basically an entirely different movie. There's no more real connections to cars. She goes to live with these firefighters, pretends to be a boy. Um, and there is there are some themes you can pick out here. Um, this idea of gender swapping constantly and feeling comfortable in your own skin is certainly part of it. Constantly having to hide the fact that she's pregnant um, so she doesn't look like a girl. Um is part of it, and I think part of it is also um, the father of this boy who went missing, who has taken her in, he um, basically, after a whole bunch of shenanigans, she um, basically can't hide it anymore, and he says he doesn't care, and he'll take care of her anyway. Um, and so there's this idea of chosen family versus given family, because at the beginning of the movie, we see that she has a kind of estranged relationship with her family. Her dad is actually played by um, notable French director Bertrand Bonello, who's directed Nocturama, one of my favorite films ever. Um, and uh, she has this very cold, very distant relationship, all related to um, a car accident years ago that she was in, uh, where her mother put her in danger, essentially. So she's not really comfortable with her family. But with this firefighter of, you know, who is a father of a missing child, she finds some sense of comfort. But to me, the movie's trying to do too much. It seems to bite off more than it can chew. It's like, I don't understand why the women and cars thing uh, is pretty prominent for the first, like, 25, 30 minutes and then completely goes away. I don't understand why she kills those people. There seems to be something sexual about it, but I couldn't quite white tell exactly what is going on and um there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie is another thing it's a lot of a lot is exchanged in actions and and you know acting and looks and everybody gives a really good performance here but i walked away feeling unfulfilled like the movie was like trying to make a lot of statements and never really successfully made any of them. It's like kind of saying something about gender identity, kind of saying something about pregnancy stigma, and yet it never really comes full circle and really makes a statement about any of those things, and it doesn't feel as impressionistic as something like a Jodorowsky or a Parajanov or something where it can leave these things really wide open. It felt like it was trying to make a point and then didn't actually make any points, just kind of gestured at them. So that's my that's my take on Titan. I do think it's worth seeing. A lot of people, a lot of prominent critics and uh, fans of movies really love it. Um, if you're into, like, Gaspar Noé and that kind of cinema, you know, Claire Denis, I think it's, you know, definitely worth a watch. But it's an intense watch. It's not for the faint of heart. Um and I heard people saying it was a comedy, which is very strange to me. There are, like, two funny moments in the whole movie, but the rest is, like, completely uncomfortable and brutal to watch. So I would not go into this expecting a real comedy. Um, yeah, so that's my review of Titan. So I'm going to play a little bit of music now. Um, this is uh, a song I've been really enjoying uh, called Pleasure. It's by a uh, 1980s uh, sort of post-punk punk band uh, called Girls at Our Best. The song's called Pleasure. All right. Hi, everybody. 
Hello. Hi, Haley. Uh, it's good to have you here. I want to start off by just asking, uh, what do you do at DePaul? I am a film and television major with a concentration in documentary film and a minor in journalism. And I am also a DePaul cheerleader and I'm a member of AOPI. Nice, nice. So when I asked for a list of movies, uh, horror movies that you wanted to talk about, you gave me a pretty eclectic list. Uh, <laughs> the Shining, Midsummer, The Belco Experiment, and Split. Yeah. What made you choose those movies? Um, specifically the psychological aspect of horror. Um, I think that's arguably the best like genre of horror movies. Mm -hmm. The jump scares and the gore can be good and they can be scary, but they are predictable. And I think some of these movies kind of like, they scare you in different ways. They make you uncomfortable in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, Oh, someone's coming around the corner. Or there's a ghost in the in the attic. It's it, it's something different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Shining is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I think that movie is just like I don't get this is not in like a macho way, but I don't get scared easily by horror movies, which I'm actually kind of disappointed by. I want to be scared. I want that feeling of dread. And The Shining is one of the few movies that like really does it for me. The way it's shot, I, it just. I think it's I, honestly, I think it's one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. Um, my mom showed it to me when I was like 12. Oh. I was super young. That's yeah, what got that's me a into bit young horror for movies. The Shining. <laughs> that's what got me into horror movies, though. And we were able to go see it um, in a theater Ooh. that shows it like on actual film. Uh, it was just like it was a really cool experience to see mm -hmm. it like that. And that's, like, kind of what got me into, like, really liking horror movies. And I just think it's great. Like, it's a super long movie to sit through. Mm -hmm. But the more you watch it, the more you notice about it. Oh, yeah. It is one of the – I Kubrick was a known perfectionist. And the level of detail in that movie – I have gone so far, and I think I have some credibility because I watch a lot of art house films. I would go so far as to say The Shining is maybe the most complex film ever made. I, okay, I've watched a lot of, um, like, analysis videos mm -hmm. online of The Shining. A lot of people do, like, breakdowns of the movie and different stuff like that. And I think part of it is, like, the subtleties and stuff. Mm -hmm. There are, the walls change positions, the doors change positions. Yep. They walk in on one side of the wall and out on another, but it's the exact same door. Do you know, and it's, do you know about it's, the, the guy who, made, who tried to make a doom level of the Overlook? Oh, no. So there was this, uh, in the 90s, somebody tried to make a Doom level of the Overlook Hotel, that old shooter video game. Um, he tried to make a map of the Overlook Hotel, and he starts, like, baking a grid and starts trying to make a blueprint of it so he can build it. And he realized, wait a minute, that window can't exist. There's a wall behind it. Wait a minute, this door leads nowhere. That staircase can't exist. The whole place, and it's ne no attention is ever brought to it. The whole place is built to confuse you and make you feel lost. The whole, the like, there's not just a maze. There's not just a, you know, giant field maze. The the hotel is a maze. Yeah, and I think that's, like, that's part of, like, that psychological aspect because when you notice it and you notice, like, he just turned left or he just turned right and there was a door there and now there's not or he's coming out of a different place completely, that's part of the thing that makes you feel creepy, but it because there's no attention brought to it unless you've watched the movie a hundred times or seen the analysis of it. Like mm -hmm. you aren't going to notice that, but it makes you feel uncomfortable because you know, something is wrong. Yes. Kubrick was very much about the um, uh, subconscious about accessing the subconscious via film. And so he puts these incredible details into the movie to make you feel things as opposed to think things. Also, if you'll notice, um, the um, outside of the little apartment that they stay in in the hotel um, uh, is uh, is just a normal room, but the inside is a corner apartment. The outside isn't. If you'll notice, yeah. when, uh, he goes out the at the very end when uh, Danny goes out the window. They're not on a corner, but if you're when you're inside, there's windows on three sides. Yeah, it's like those little things where you're looking at it from the outside. You're gonna see one window and that's their room when he, you know, he's sliding out, he's getting away from his 
crazy father mm-hmm. and you know you're inside you're seeing all these windows you're seeing different levels to this apartment and you're like oh this is so nice they're staying in this beautiful hotel but as it keeps going like the hotel creeps you out just as much as like anything else in the movie the environment because it's not yeah it's it's not just about this crazy man that's you know got you know quote-unquote cabin fever or whatever and tries to kill his family it is you know the magic aspect of danny and the just the whole hotel one of the big questions of the shining and it's one that's really open to interpretation is is the hotel actually haunted because there's evidence that leads in both directions um that's interesting because i want to believe that it is because you know a horror movie is oh, there's ghosts, it's haunted, people died here. It was, you know, it was built over an Indian burial ground, whatever. But it's also like, is it just the people that have the shining, like Danny, who bring it out and make it known mm-hmm. to other people? Like, is it just the hotel or is it the people that bring it out too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's just a wonderful movie. So what made you pick Midsummer? I watched it way after everyone else had watched it. I was alone in my apartment last year and I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch it. It's not going to be that scary. I had never seen an Ari Aster movie mm-hmm. ever. Um, and I sat there and the whole time I was curled up under my blanket and I was like, what is actually happening right now? It was just like crazy. My brain couldn't comprehend like what was going on for the first like hour of the movie and then I realized like oh there's stuff moving and like the trees are shifting like all the time and like obviously it has to do with like, the drugs they're taking and stuff like that but I didn't put that together because the whole movie is just throwing more and more at you that just scares you in general I would be scared being in a completely unfamiliar place and feeling like I'm stuck yeah, I think they both both movies do a similar thing with setting where um, they always make mm-hmm. uh, the characters obviously always seem lost. And then because like so in The Shining, the the hotel never like seems the same, like every turn. You, it, it's like, like a, even the hotel is a complete maze. And then the fact that the trees and the natural surroundings and um, the midsummer commune are always changing makes the audience feel lost. And then it reflects that similar tension that the main characters then feel and this terrifying experience that they're in yeah it's both there's two movies where the environment is very much like almost a character in the movie um which is pretty hard to pull off it's more of an important aspect than just oh this is a haunted house Mm -hmm. but someone did witchcraft here someone died here you know a tragedy happened on in this house it's it's more than that because it plays more of a role. There's not characters within the house that terrorize the people that are in the house. It is the actual house itself or the hotel itself that is hurting these people or scaring them. And it's it's interesting you picked, almost I think all four movies you picked are less about external threats than internal threats. So you picked four movies that are instead of oh, there's a monster, you know, hiding. It's all about this sort of fear of what's within ourselves, of this capability to hurt other people. Well, I think, like, again, like I said, the gore and the jump scares, they don't scare me. Mm -hmm. The movies that I'm drawn to are more of, like, oh, uh, this person, like, in Split, these people have been kidnapped and what would I do in this situation? It Mm kind of like forces you to put yourself in that person's shoes to uh, empathize and sympathize with them and feel like, Oh, what would I do? This is scary because I don't know how I would react in this situation. What if my friend did this to me? Like, I don't know. So that's like that unknown fear aspect that I am drawn to in a lot of horror movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the Belko experiment almost doesn't operate like a normal horror movie. That one is heavy on the gore. Yeah, incredibly. Uh, that one is. Uh, arguably not a scary movie. I think 
Some people think it is because it is a terrifying situation to imagine yourself being in. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first time I watched it, I almost didn't think it was a horror movie. I was like, it could be, but like it couldn't be. Um, It's not like stereotypical where there's like an unknown entity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an unknown entity, but it's not like supernatural. It's Mm -hmm. a person who's coming over the intercom of a work building, locking these people in and telling them, if you don't kill your coworkers, you're going to die. And so that's completely different. Yeah, it poses this very difficult question of, is it better to hurt others or let yourself be hurt? And you see different characters react in different ways and they all kind of represent each perspective. Well, towards the end of the film, you see how people are grouping together Mm -hmm. and the quote unquote strongest ones are in power and controlling some of the other people that are either refusing to hurt other people or are just hiding or whatever. And it's just a power struggle at that point versus like the the biggest group in charge versus other people who are trying to take over or save other people or help other people. But you know, through the whole movie, if everyone has to die except one person, all these people that are grouping together and working together mm-hmm. are going to end up hurting each other. So you don't know who's going to win. It's essentially a, 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 a more violent Hunger Games yeah, I can see that. It's it asks a I mean, lot it's of the still same a, questions about conf- murder. Yeah, confined spaces, like minimal weapons other than the random like giant gun safe in the basement. Um, yeah, like that was, that was a little convenient. A little too a little convenient, convenient, but <laughs> I mean, if you're being chipped when you come in to work there, you're being mm-hmm forced to kill each other or your head is going to explode that is gory but it's also like oh my gosh what like again psychological what would i do in that situation would i be one of the ones that was trying to like hide and stay by myself would i try to fight these people off would i be hurting other people it's like those questions that you have to ask yourself in a situation like that like that's what makes it scarier Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I gotta be honest, the only movie I actually really enjoy out of all of these four is The Shining. I have, um, Midsummer. I think, does a lot of interesting things. First, I admire Midsummer's aesthetic. I like how bright the movie is. Like, literally, just bright. It's like, hurts your eyes after a while. The movie's almost all in daylight. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, horror movies have done that before. Halloween did it. Texas Chainsaw Massacre did it. But th- it's just something about the way Midsummer looks where it's like, it's like dreamy and sort of, and I think that's supposed to convey the sort of drugged atmosphere of the whole event. And part of it too is like, they're all always wearing white or really light colors. Mm-hmm. And white is supposed to, sim- um, it- it's a symbol for purity. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if someone is wearing all white, they're pure, they're clean. And because it's so bright, it feels happy and exciting. And all of the things happening around them that either they're noticing or not noticing are just awful. People are disappearing and they're supposed to be there studying and visiting this beautiful place in this beautiful commune and interacting with these different kinds of people and everything and everyone makes it uncomfortable mm-hmm. while being in this beautiful setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a lot of inspiration from uh, another horror movie, The Wicker Man, uh, the original one back from the 70s, which is also largely in broad daylight and um, is also about a mysterious cult and outsiders coming in and trying to figure out what on earth is happening. Um so it definitely takes some inspiration from that movie, I think. Um, but Midsummer kind of takes it in a different direction with the end. Um, the ending specifically is uh, 
it's been discussed a lot about is it you know about female empowerment in some ways is it about is it just revenge like what is the ending really saying um for when uh she ends up killing her then boyfriend uh I never saw it as anything female empowerment. I thought it'd be kind of a bad way to empower women. If you, (laughs) if, if the best way to be a feminist is just go around killing people. I mean, I think some of it was the sense of community that they felt went because, you know, most of the women were all together during the day and like doing the same activities and, you know, expressing or showing that they were expressing the same emotions because, you know, at the end when she was crying because she just killed her boyfriend, Everyone else started crying, but when she felt that sense of community, she felt power. So I think that's the feminism or the female empowerment aspects that people are seeing. But I felt more of like a revenge feeling, especially Mm -hmm. with killing the man that was causing you so much pain and just angering you day after day for getting important dates and events. I would feel like that. I would feel like I wanted revenge. I wouldn't kill anybody over it. But I would, I would be upset, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is this sort of question of, and it, uh, the final straw is when she sees him having sex with that woman, who, uh, which is very much a cult thing. It's very uncomfortable, and it, it's strange. an uncomfortable last like thirty minutes. Because you know what's happening. You know they're taking her away and taking her on this beautiful carriage out and making her the queen, basically, to get her away so that they can drug him and con him into having sex with this other woman. They all know what they're doing. They know what they're there for. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason they're doing it. But I would also... I would be upset if I took went on a trip with my boyfriend and found him drugged and be uh, with another woman. So my problem with Midsummer is that okay, I find cults really interesting, right? And what makes absolutely them, what makes them really interesting is that everything has some sort of sim- symbology. Everything is very specific. Everything and there are it, it, like every ritual means something very specific. Um, and I feel like Midsummer doesn't really go into that i feel like we just get a lot of hey look at how weird this is and we don't get a lot of the this actually means this this means this this is why they're doing what they're doing because that to me would be scarier if they really if we really understood why they felt justified in letting people kill themselves during rituals really i think the aspect of that is like yeah it's kind of missing that but like I don't know, going into, like, some of the other things with, like, the May Queen, I think they call her at the end, they just kind of dump that out. Like, oh, those are the May Queens. And then they kind of move on from it. So, like, the only important one is that end one. Mm -hmm. I would disagree with Daleks slightly, just in the sense I find mystery uh, much scarier. Like, uh, Like, I always... Yeah, like, I'm, like, a, a movie monster or, like, um like a demon or like take like a possession for example i always end up finding it less scary when like we understand like where the demon came from like something about the mystery of these things i find much more terrifying so i also wasn't a gigantic fan of midsummer but i think the fact that it doesn't explain any of the cult's motives is kind of a good thing i have to ask with them being there to study and you know write papers about this and why aren't they asking more of those questions? They don't start asking any questions until the end. And that's after, you know, asking for permission, which I understand, obviously, if this is some kind of sacred thing, but they aren't asking any extra questions until the end. They're just like, why is this happening? And everyone's like, this is what we do. And they just take it at face value when Mm -hmm. obviously that's not normal. And you can take that in and you can accept that. But I know being in their shoes, I would ask more questions. I would want to know yeah. what's going on. That's another on. thing about the movie is that like, they're all not that smart. They don't ask a lot of questions. They don't really question it when their friends go missing, which like 
it's like how that, much of like the drugging makes up for that. Like you can just blame it all on the drugs. No, that's normal horror movie stuff. Like no one asks questions until something horrible happens. No one's gonna ask a question. Someone goes missing, like, oh, they'll come back. And it's or like that's not reality. A, Nobody's a like, hey, we answer. haven't seen this person for like a few hours. Maybe we should maybe we should check on them. That's like the normal response. And yeah, they I are mean, drugged, which like kind of, you know, it makes sense why they'd be a little, you know, out there, you know, they'd be a little spaced out. But it still feels like the classic, the, you know, the people getting duped aren't that smart, and which can be a little bit annoying. I mean, the, you know, the one triumph at the end, the one woman that makes it, she was still being drugged the whole time, but, she, you know, she was paying more attention than anyone else. But she still wasn't asking enough questions. Mm -hmm. And when she was, she was asking the wrong people. She was asking the people she was with, the people that she was familiar with, and they can't give her the answers that she wants. Mm -hmm. Maybe so it's a, even then, she was being stupid. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a bit of a commentary on uh, the power that cults have, how they uh, brainwash people into thinking everything's all right. And that goes back to how we talked about the brightness of the film and how they all wore white. They're supposed to be these people in the cult think that they are living in this utopic world and they are trying to be as friendly as possible. So like, yes, the main characters are idiots, but I think it kind of proves the power that this cult had over them. And that's why I want to know more about the cult. Why are they so utopic? Why are but they so, what, and how does that justify killing? Like, how does it all work together? How does, how do these, how do these rituals symbolize how do, how do these rituals of death symbolize something that is utopic i'm always just curious about that you you know enough about cults to know that a lack of knowledge is power for the leaders and the people in charge that's true so is that what they're doing to the other people in the cult or are they only doing it to these outside visitors because you have to wonder how much other people know you know, if only these big leaders and the elders know exactly what's going on and why they're doing it and are just telling everyone else what to do because we said so, what, what does that say about, you know, the other people who are bringing and showing these other outsiders their life? Mm -hmm. Does everybody know exactly what's going on or do these other people not really know and only those leaders do. See, I think the movie doesn't really explore that very much. Yeah, I guess it's kind of more open-ended. I would say, like, for people that are interested in cults, this is, a, like, you know, a cool movie to watch to be like, oh, I'd be in, what would I do in that situation? You know, something like that. But it's like, if you know anything about cults, you know, lack of knowledge is power for people in charge. Mm -hmm. If you don't tell them everything and you only give them blanket statements and answers that they absolutely need, they're going to take it and run with it if they believe in you. And when you're so isolated like that, you have to take it because there's nowhere else for you to go. See, what's fascinating to me about something like, say, the Jonestown Massacre, right? What's fascinating to me about that is the crazy reasons why it happened. What's fascinating to me are the crazy things that these people believed. That's what's scary to me is that there because were people who believed these insane things and that justified something as horrific as that well they were taken out to jonestown and pulled away from their families not given any access to write to them all their mail in and out was monitored they were completely controlled in every aspect of their life and because things were going so poorly they had no food they didn't have enough living space for all these people like they ultimately they were all going to die because of natural causes. They didn't have enough food, clean water, housing, just general safety. And because they were isolated, completely taken away from their friends and family, had no other resources. They have to believe in this man who's telling them and telling them, I have stuff for you. Look at this. I'm giving you everything you have. You should be grateful. See, that's another thing. They can't leave. <laughs> that's another thing is, uh, Cults are often based around a person, you know, a Charles Manson or something. Um, and 
Midsummer does not have that. And that's not a criticism, it's just an observation. Midsummer isn't really based around a per, uh, a specific person. Um which is just a, it's an interesting thing because cults often are they're based around a charismatic leader. I think some of it has to do with their like specific rituals, like mm-hmm. this is their like super special um like midsummer festival that they that they celebrate and this is huge for them and i think that's what it focuses on more because everyone has someone in charge of them everyone who's older is in charge of someone younger so like it's not necessarily you know everyone respects that their elders and respects the oldest people that are in this community but everyone has someone in charge of them mm-hmm Everyone has a job, so it keeps them complacent. It keeps yeah, them yeah, yeah. listening to the one above them. So maybe like this, like completely hazy chain of command is part of it. Nobody really mm-hmm. knows who's on top, and I kind of wish the movie went into that more. It went into this sort of like nobody really understands. Nobody even in the cult really understands what's happening. I mean, there are parts of the movie that feel like they're dragging and that would be an interesting thing to kind of see if you could dive into that and see if you could dive into that chain of command. Why are these two people the oldest? Why are they the most important versus like, what are these younger people doing? Who's in charge of them specifically? Is it just parents? Is it all of the parents in that generation in charge of all the kids? How is it working? What is the family dynamic? Where are all these people living? All of that kind of stuff. Like if it didn't drag in some parts and have random like, oh, we're sitting in a field tripping on drugs, then it could go into some of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the day, Midsummer is like kind of a mixed bag for me. I think I admire it for its aesthetic and really committing to a unique look for a horror movie. And I think it looks at cults in a way that we haven't really seen in horror movies before, but I wish it got it went a little bit deeper into what makes cults, like, what makes them work, what keeps people, I think I like the word you said, complacent, how it, like, keeps pe- these people, you know, trapped in this, like, sort of sense of normalcy, when really yeah. what they're doing is completely abnormal. And they, how do you keep these people from really thinking about what they're doing? And I wish the movie really dug into that. And I have problems with the way Ari Aster writes in general. I'm not a fan of Hereditary either. Um, so I feel like there's a good movie in Midsummer. I feel like there's something really strong in there. And it just doesn't quite get there, at least for me. Yeah. I mean, gi- giving that, like, push over the edge into, like, what this cult is actually doing what they're like mm-hmm. outside of this special festival that they're doing. I guess I could understand that, but I also know that not everybody is like us that needs to overanalyze every yeah, movie that's and the figure the movie... it all out. It's it's made for more normal movie consumers, yeah. not, you know, film A- A24 <laughs> kind of fills in this gap between like art house and mainstream cinema where mm-hmm. it's like more accessible art house stuff where it's still strange, it's still auteur cinema, but it, I don't want to say it's not as deep, because I think there's some really excellent A24 movies that are really complex and really ask, you know, Moonlight and Florida Project and some really great movies, but um, it does kind of make itself a little more accessible um, as a way to, like, bridge that gap of movie fans. Um, mm-hmm. So it A24 holds an interesting position I mean, bridging that gap is especially important for people that are, you know, getting into film or are super deep into film Mm -hmm. because I can still enjoy, you know, some, some movies like Midsummer. I can enjoy that movie. And Mm -hmm. I, I do love that movie. I love, I don't see that many cult movies that aren't documentaries. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stereotypical cult where there's one leader and he, he is, more than likely he is telling everyone what to do versus everyone is equal, but someone's in charge of everyone. That's kind of different. And it's still like, it's all, again, it's bright. It's happy. It's wonderful. Everyone is just excited to be here. 
and it's not terrifying. People aren't really trying to escape except for the people that are mm -hmm. visiting. Yeah, it's not like the really like scary cults that like imprison you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the Belco experiment, the Belco experiment asks this question of like selfishness of like, would you, how selfish would you be in this scenario? How would you be willing to hurt others for your own benefit to help you survive? And it kind of asks the question of are humans inherently primalistic and out for their own needs? And I think that's why I was drawn to the movie yeah. and like drawn into it so much because especially following the main character, the way he was written, he did not kill anybody. And he was trying to help people and keep people alive once they've been hurt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was trying to figure out a solution to get out other than just murdering everybody. Mm -hmm. So when it got to, you know, the end, when he was put in a position where he had to fight for his own life, that was the only person that he killed. He fought one person and ended up winning because he was helping everybody else. And that's, I think that's why people are drawn to the movie, but especially me, because if I were in that position, I don't know what I would do, but I would love to be the person that was helping the whole time. And, you know, I wouldn't want to have killing anybody on my mind, but if I survived by only killing one person and not, you know, there were 30 people in total, not 26 others, I would feel much better about myself and getting out of there being alive still. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's crazy to think about being locked in a building with 30 people, no way out. You can't, you know, get on the roof to get help. You can't escape. All of these doors are completely locked and barricaded and you have to, you know, fight flight or freeze your way out of this horrible situation. Yeah, and it, it Another question it poses is about, like, the lifeboat experiment, you know, the thought experiment about uh, there are so many, there are, you know, 15 people on a boat, uh, this and it's sinking. You can only fit seven on this lifeboat. Who do you choose? You know, who has the most value as a person? Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, the first thing they go to is do you have kids? They get rid of the elderly. Um and uh, so it starts asking this question of what defines a human's value? Uh, is it what they produce? Is it how much work they do? Is it having children? Is that what produces value? Like, it starts yeah, asking I mean, really difficult questions. They're going after janitorial staff, older people first, people with no kids, people with little to no family, you know, all of those kinds of people, they immediately see them as lesser than the people that, you know, have three kids and have worked at this company for 10 years and all, whatever. Like, I don't understand how you're going to, uh, like, you're all on the same playing field here. You're and, all put in the exact same situation. And the movie doesn't just, like, kind of pose the question. It answers it. They actually kill those people. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. executioner style, you know, hands behind your back, on your knees, it's well, is that what the directors and the writers think? Or is that just common? Yeah. Like, oh, everyone thinks that, so we're going to put it in. And that's another question you have to ask is like, is the writer of this film thinking old people don't matter in this situation? Yeah. Kill them. I, I don't know. James Gunn is, uh, I don't know. I think the movie is more posing the question of what would, what, what do you think? defines a human's value rather than uh this defines a human's value i don't think james gunn is outright saying if in this situation we should kill the old people i think he's sort of well is it playing too much into that like stereotypical like save you know the people that you know have a phd and are going to be a doctor or in doctorate school or and kill the old people who have, you know, little life left to live. Is it playing too much into that to be like too stereotypical? Like, oh yeah. in this situation, you know, like in, in the trolley experiment, you know, do you kill 
five people or one based off of like these different scenarios. Like this person's a doctor, but like there are three children on the other train track. So like, you know, it's like, it's stereotypical. What would you do? The answer is different for everybody, but almost everybody off the bat is going to get like, ah, like kill the old people first, let the children live because Mm they have more life to live and more to give and they could do so much with their lives. And then you have that but you one, don't know. <laughs> the one character, our main like quote unquote villain of the movie, who he's the one making these decisions. He's the one grabbing people out of line and being like, you are coming and you are going to be executed. Yeah. Like, and we, what gives him the right exactly. to make that decision? And obviously Other he's than excluding the fact himself. That he has a weapon. Obviously he's excluding himself from the people who you know, he's giving himself more value. So then it goes back to that question of selfishness. It goes to like, are humans naturally inclined to go for their own, to fight for their own desires over helping the group? Are humans individualistic like that? Which is why the two characters are so completely opposite. They Mm -hmm. don't get along in the beginning, but they really don't get along at the end because they're (laughs) fighting for two completely different things, but they're both fighting for essentially the same thing. They both want to live, but throughout the whole movie, they're fighting for something completely different. They're going after, I mean the villain of the movie he's going after power he wants to be in charge he wants power he wants people to listen to him he wants to kill people because he's being selfish versus the the main character of the film he is helping people the whole time he's hiding he's trying to get other people weapons so that they can live and he's trying to think outside of the game you know he the the villain sort of takes to the game whereas our like protagonist of sorts He's trying to, like, think outside of the game and, uh, like, think his way out of the situation that they're in and, you know, circumvent the rules so that he can, uh, so that he can help more people live. And then in the end, he does end up killing more people because he takes all of those, you know, the little things that are going to explode in people's heads. He's taking those that they have taken out completely out of other people and puts them in his pocket and he takes off. And when he's out, he's sneaking them into people's pockets. He's figuring out, looking at all the controls in the control room and figuring out how to switch these off and kill these people who put him through hell. So is that justified? That's another Mm -hmm. question. Is that justified at the end? Because they just made him kill one person, but made 29 other people die as well. Mm -hmm. It's a hard movie to watch. It really is. It's an uncomfortable, I think. It, like... Uncomfortable in the goriness sometimes, but uncomfortable in the fact that it asks so many questions that, like, I feel like this isn't a normal situation where you'd be like, you know, like, oh, I was kidnapped. What would I do in this situation? It's I'm stuck in my office building, no cell reception, no help, and people are trying to control us or kill us. Yeah, it's kill or be killed, and that's a really yeah. hard question to ask. You know, uh, would you rather die or kill? And yeah, there's no real good answer to that question. And I think that's where the fear of the movie lies, is it kind of puts this mirror on yourself and says, what would you do? Because it asks that question of everybody in the movie, but it also asks the viewer, what would you do in this situation? And the people trying to rationalize it and reason with other people and saying, well, like, this is why I'm doing it. Why not just kill, you know, 10 people before the hour is up so that the rest of us can live when you know more people are going to have to die after that. And part of that is the normalcy of the original working environment, that these are just normal people. These are normal office workers. And to see them driven to such lengths is another question of, like, the human primalistic instinct of, are humans, you know, given these circumstances, are humans going to be violent? Are they going to be inherently violent? It's also a question that I've been asked before in 
a social studies class, we um, talked about are people born good or bad? Mm-hmm. And, are, you know, are you a completely blank slate from the moment you are born? Are you not based off of your parents, your environment? How does that change as you grow? And that's like another question. Are people just born bad and you have to try to be good? Or is everyone born good and because of your circumstances, you're just going to be a bad person? This kind of goes back to our last week's discussion. You weren't here, but we were talking about Terrence Malick. Um, and there's this question posed in... Uh, uh, the Tree of Life, and it kind of sums up his entire filmography of this way of nature versus way of grace and this idea of humans naturally being self-serving, naturally being, you know, I don't want to say evil feels too strong, but I think self-serving is the right word. Are humans naturally out for their own needs over other people's? I also think the hysteria of the whole... Um experiment that they're in also adds to it like obviously if anyone's thrown into an incredibly insane situation like that they're not going to have enough time to think justly or with enough thought to like think of oh how can i get out of this situation uh peacefully again i think it also comments on that mm-hmm. and you have to think about the people that want to get out peacefully versus the people that don't can the people that want to get out peacefully change the minds and opinions of the people that are just going right. to kill to get it done, to get out, to serve themselves. That's like a really hard situation to be in because as much as you want to try to argue your opinion versus someone else's, it's an opinion. It's right to them. So it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean they're going to change. So then you could draw parallels between like an authoritarian government and its people of like, can people change the minds of a government that has power and is working to hurt them? Can minds be changed within that? Because not everybody as part of that is willing. So is it possible to organically change minds to be on the side of good? Because the idea of power and life, you know, the prospect of living is very alluring. And I think that's why these people go for, you know, the weapons and start eliminating other people is because it's natural to want to live. And this idea of we could we could hurt other people or we could try and figure a way out of this together but there's a strong allure to the killing other people in order to save yourself because it seems as though that's the only way out of the situation mm-hmm. at certain points it is yeah you know they try to go to the roof to get help but a sign up they're in the middle of nowhere and they're going to get shot at if they get up they're gonna die they're going their heads are gonna explode you know Mm -hmm. it's not just oh well if we all stop and protest this we'll be fine there's another threat they've been chipped and put an explosive is in their head they can't do anything so when there is what seems to be absolutely no way out except kill yourself or kill other people most people are going to want to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's instinct. That's human nature. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's about all the time we have. Uh, thank you for talking with us, Haley. That was a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you for having me. I had yes. fun. <laughs> uh, I am going to play us out with a little uh, mass of the fermenting dregs, uh, a band I've been really enjoying recently. Uh, This is Highlight.